Transform your investment strategy with the MD Platinum Global Private Equity 2023 Trust. This unique offering exclusive to physician families uses non-traditional strategies that allow you to diversify your portfolio and potentially help grow your wealth over the long term. With access to institutional level private equity opportunities, this solution could be what you need to help you meet your financial goals. Learn more about this limited time opportunity at mb.ca slash private equity. Welcome to episode 30 of the MD Market Watch podcast. I'm your host, Alex Chung, content manager with MD Financial Management. Today, I'm joined by Craig Maddock, Vice President, Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of the Multi-Asset Management Team, and Wesley Blight, Portfolio Manager, to reflect on the past three months, talk about key drivers of investment performance, and discuss what lies ahead and how we're positioned. Please enjoy. Welcome back, Craig. Wes, it's that time again. Clients have received their first quarterly statement of 2023, and it's been another interesting quarter. We continue to see market volatility, but overall, performance has been solid in both equities and fixed income. I'm keen to share your thoughts on the quarter, our outlook, and the latest on how we've positioned client portfolios. Lots to discuss. Let's jump in. To start things off, Craig, what were the key drivers that impacted markets in the first three months of 2023? You are correct that the first quarter of the year was very good and performance uh, was strong across most asset classes. That also means that portfolios we manage were also off to a good start as well. We saw conservative portfolios up around 3.5% and long-term growth portfolios up around 5%. I'd say the returns we achieved were similar to what we'd expect through almost a full year of investing. And for conservative portfolios, they have a higher allocation to bonds. Canadian bond investments were up over 3% in the quarter, with a number of our bond mandates approaching 4%. In fact, we saw the largest quarterly drop in interest rates since early in 2020 at the start of the pandemic. Why did rates drop so much? Market participants really believe that this significant shift up in interest rates that was done to tame inflation is actually starting to work. And therefore, central banks around the world will be able to stop raising interest rates and eventually be able to move back down a little bit lower. In addition, the belief that inflation is starting to moderate propelled investors back into stocks, hoping to catch the bottom. Uh, the best performance for Canadian investors actually came from international markets, as Europe did particularly well. And that's off the back of warmer than expected winter in Europe, as well as a reopening of China after lengthy COVID lockdowns. However, North American stocks were strong too, with the S&P TSX Composite Index, which represents Canadian stocks, up 4.6%, and the S&P 500 Index up 7.4% in Canadian dollars. And with the decline in interest rates, investors who pushed the technology and communications and consumer discretionary stocks to excessive valuations back in 2021, well, they seem to be lured back into the market. So if you lift the hood on the S&P 500 index, you'll see that only these three industry sectors outperformed the S&P 500 in the first quarter. All other sectors trailed the index, and six of them actually had negative returns for the quarter. So while on the surface, things look pretty rosy, lurking beneath, we're still working through some challenges. Biggest challenge that showed up in the quarter was the banking sector, which moderated returns at the end of the quarter. And for those who follow style-based investing, the clear winner for the quarter was large cap growth, with both small and value trailing significantly. After about a year of rapidly rising interest rates, the Bank of Canada has paused on increases, and the U.S. Federal Reserve has slowed its pace of increasing. Wes, what should we expect this year? The banking crisis that happened in the, in the U.S. earlier in March, and the policy reaction to stem that contagion, might have worked. It might have actually stopped the contagion from transpiring in the way that it could have. But the market is now pushing back, recognizing that central bank policy is starting to become too tight for the economy to be able to handle those tightening in financial conditions. 
easing inflation, it's clearly happening. We're starting to get some deflationary pressure coming from some segments of the economy, but it's not happening as fast as what we had assumed before. And central banks are now pushing back against that perspective that they'll be able to cut rates in the near future. But the market is coming out and saying that, well, because they've tightened so much, it takes time for that tightening to work. We've had this regional bank crisis show up in the US. We had it come over to Europe a little bit. Maybe they're going to have to start cutting rates. And the market's expectation that cuts are going to happen in the next few months is the key reason why interest rates and bond yields have moved down so significantly thus far this year. There is a very big dislocation between the market's expectation of where rates are headed and what central banks are assuming. So central banks, taking the U.S. Federal Reserve as an example, is actually expecting and guiding that there are going to be tighter monetary policy over the next couple of months before staying flat through to the end of the year. And that has caused bond yields to move meaningfully lower than where they were at the beginning of the year. And that has felt fantastic as a bond investor. And that if you look over the last year in Canada, probably well ahead and anyone really would have expected. And then if you look at the year to date performance was 3.2. Short term bonds were up 1.8%. Midterm bonds were up 3.9%. And then long term bonds were up 4.7%. But to Craig's point earlier, that's more what you would expect to happen in a year as opposed to in a quarter. Speaking about the US regional bank problems, Wes actually put out an excellent blog in March explaining what happened. Craig, perhaps you can explain the impact this development has had on performance. As I mentioned, uh, it did mute returns in the quarter. Prior to the flare-up in banking, uh, by mid-March, things were on track for an even better quarter. However, the US financial sector ended down the quarter about 7%. Now, this was on the back of the failure of two U.S. regional banks. So Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank failed in the quarter. Now, the financial sector overall traded down as a result. However, and I think it's important, it certainly does not feel like this is going to lead to a systematic banking problem. Silicon Valley Bank was a very small bank, about $200 billion in domestic assets. Sounds like a lot of money, but when you compare that to the $19.8 trillion in the U.S. banking system, it's a pretty small bank overall and it had a quite concentrated customer base. Now, the cause of its failure was the mismanagement of interest rates, and that is fundamentally different from what we saw back in 2008 with the global financial crisis, and the banking sector was highly levered, and there was a pervasive use of off-balance sheet derivatives. You fast forward to today, the Fed, the U.S. Treasury, have lots of tools to ensure the stability of the financial system. We saw those in action after the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. However, these recent bank failures did show the unintended consequences of aggressive central bank tightening. That immediate market impact, right? Number one, we saw short-term market volatility and uncertainty. That flared up in March for sure. We also saw migration of deposits from regional banks over to bigger banks as people were concerned. We saw the sell-off I just mentioned in the financial sector. And of course, as Wes mentioned, we saw the contagion impact spill over to things like Europe where Credit Suisse, which has had some difficulties of late anyway, uh, this sort of created a catalyst for them to also fail, requiring them to be taken over by UBS. On top of that, there's the impact, as Wes said, to the economy and the central bank's policies, right? So the banking crisis really sort of sparked this shift in market expectations around, will the Fed hike, will they not hike? And it pushed up, if you will, the expectations around when this Fed hiking cycle will end. 
because to be fair, with banks in play right now, if there's some issues around that, it could in fact tighten the system all on its own. So now the Fed has to balance off, do you support the banking system with liquidity or do you fight inflation with interest rate increases, given that inflation is still with us? This recent banking crisis or stress, if you will, is likely going to result in higher funding costs, tighter credit conditions for households and businesses, which is ultimately going to slow down economic activity. It'll slow down hiring and ultimately help to tame inflation a little bit. To build on that, Craig, has the situation settled in your opinion? I think the scariest scenarios have definitely been avoided. I think it's important to note, though, for Canadians that things are generally fine for Canadian banks and the Canadian economy, uh, which are in a much different position than our global counterparts. So will global banks tighten up lending, slowing down the economy? Probably. Uh, Will the financial system collapse as it did in 2008, 2009? Probably not. Back over to you, Wes. Is it fair to say that some pretty big questions remain unanswered for investors when it comes to how things will play out for the remainder of the year? It sure is. And I think the biggest ones in our mind revolve around inflation still being elevated. That's led to an inverted bond yield curve, which typically leads to recessions. And then the last question is around when will central banks stop raising rates and when are they going to pivot back into cuts? So starting with inflation, inflation's still really high. There are continued signs of it slowing down and that we've seen uh, headline inflation come down with energy falling materially. Uh, Food prices still high, but they've come down a little bit as well. And then even core inflation is falling from its September peak. Goods are the main factor that are causing that disinflationary pressure, but services, so thinking of shelter and transportation, those are still really high. We do think that particularly in the U.S. and in Canada as well, that household metrics are going to start to slow down as the consumer's ability to continue to spend as much as they have been spending will gradually slow down. That said, we don't have a lot of confidence that it's going to slow down as quickly as is being predicted by the market. Part of the reason for that is that personal savings are still pretty elevated. Uh, there was a good opportunity for personal savings to be ratcheted materially higher from March 2020 through until August 2021. But consumers have been spending that down, uh, but they still have enough cash to be able to go out and do things not able to do during the pandemic. Now, part of the reason why we've got an inverted curve is that inflationary pressure and that central banks have been predicted to act very strongly, swiftly, and take in measures to combat that inflationary pressure. They've done that in a material way such that the bond yield curve, so this is talking about U.S. 10-year bonds relative to U.S. 10-year bonds, that curve is not normal and that the two-year yield is higher than the 10-year. That's not something that you would normally assume to happen. You go back to the early 2000s, right before the global financial crisis, the late 1980s, those were all predictors of negative events from an economic perspective, negative events from an equity perspective. We are now at a greater inversion of the bond yield curve than where we were at any of those three events. You have to go all the way back to the early 1980s for an equivalent inverted curve. Now, I mentioned that that's usually a predictor of an upcoming recession. We do think that there is going to be an economic slowdown. There may even be a recession, but we don't think that that's going to be a deep and long-lasting recession. It is also the best telegraphed recession in my career. 
economic data clearly slowing, but we've had companies, investors, they have been provided with ample time to think through how they will be able to manage that economic slowdown, but it hasn't happened yet. Now, PMIs um, are declining in Europe. We are moving away from our own economic recovery models. We're moving back into contraction. Uh, the reopening of China and the positive boom that we were expecting from uh, China reopening, that is past us now. And we're starting to see uh, a corresponding easing of financial conditions, which is what we talked about earlier around the change in interest rates. So will central banks pivot? That's kind of where we're all leading these, these questions towards. Investors clearly think that there will be cuts in 2023. Central banks themselves are not suggesting that there are going to be cuts in 2023. Their guidance suggests that those cuts will happen later into 2024. Bank of Canada is not raising rates anymore. They're obviously subject to incoming economic data, which may lead to a different decision down the road. Uh, whereas the federal bank in the, in the US is still guiding towards higher rates than where we are right now. From our perspective, we think that there is the ability for central banks in North America to pause, but we don't really think that there's going to be material cuts taking place this year. Given all that information, how have these events from the first quarter informed our views for investing going forward? Has anything changed? I often talk about how investors naturally think in terms of quarters or even calendar years, uh, but really what's important is how you perform over a lifetime of investing. It can be pretty uncomfortable when things move the wrong way, and of course it gets pretty exciting when markets rally, but for me it's really always the long term that matters. Now we know that both stocks and bonds will fluctuate in value, but we also know that they generally go up over time. And certainly after a very tough 2022, Q1 of 2023 looked really good for a lot of reasons, uh, but that doesn't really change too much for the long term. We still think there are good investment opportunities available, and we believe that volatility will continue. That means there's gonna be some economic ups and downs, and of course we plan for that into our portfolios and build them accordingly. Just, you know, for example, we updated our long-term capital market assumptions, and we do this every year, and we use those to position our portfolios for the future. So, you know, thinking ahead, how do we think different asset class will work, and then how do you put those together in the most compelling way for a portfolio? Now, last year, we had a decline of both stocks and bonds, and therefore, forward-looking assumptions are meaningfully higher, and that bodes really well for long-term investors. In addition, we use these expectations to adjust portfolios between things like stocks and bonds or style of investments and how we expect each strategy to perform. So with these higher interest rates, the possibility of them being higher for a while, uh, strategies like value investing start to look more attractive and perhaps can help improve a portfolio. So for me, in that regard, it's more of an evolution than just how the quarter showed up. Uh, the team's constantly reviewing our portfolios always trying to find ways to add extra return or reduce risk or do both if we can. And I'm constantly challenging the team to consider what adjustments could we make to the market based on these investment opportunities? Can we do things like regional allocations, how we allocate between US, international, emerging markets, other things? Uh, within our bond mandates, can we adjust for the fact that interest rates are higher? And what do we do with our duration exposure or how do we use credit? How might we use things like alternative investments in portfolios to enhance return or manage risk? And then finally, which manager or strategy is likely to do the best going forward and how do we factor that into our portfolio? So with all that background, we're constantly making shifts, ways to improve portfolios 
And I wouldn't suggest that just because something incredible happened in the quarter, um, we're going to make any radical shifts to portfolios. Any final thoughts from you, Wes? Has anything changed on your end? Long-term capital market assumptions. That is an exercise that we do every year. As we talked about a few months ago, we're now expecting higher returns in the coming years. So that's expressly over the next 10 years than what we were expecting a year prior. And this is mostly coming from an increase in our return assumptions around bonds, mostly because of bond yields. The vast majority of forward-looking return through time for bonds comes from the starting yield, but it's also true for equities in that uh, as last year's poor performance has worked its way through, it's led to some more attractive valuations in terms of how return is going to be derived for equities going forward. That is giving us a little bit more wiggle room uh, in the more near term because a lot of the negativity around capital markets, particularly in bonds, was already priced into the market. So we may get a little bit more of a tailwind in the short term, but our view here is really around the long term and building that long term strategic allocation based on dramatically improved long term capital market assumptions. Uh, we're currently positioned defensively. Uh, we are more focused on uh, preservation of capital. And as we get signs, uh, we'll start to increase the equity allocation in select portfolios. And what we're looking for specifically uh, would be kind of what I was talking about earlier. And that as we start to get signs for inflation being more clearly and convincingly slowing, that may help us to move towards a higher equity allocation. Uh, we also recognize that there is a lot of negativity around equity performance right now and that bears are outweighing uh, bulls in terms of investor sentiment. And as that dynamic starts to shift, that would be another sign that we would start to look to increase our equity allocation in some portfolios. And in the meantime, I think the way that we're positioned from a fixed income perspective and that laser focus on capital preservation has us really well positioned to add value. We talked a couple months ago about adding a lot of value in 2022. I talked earlier about the absolute return from fixed income being so strong year to date. And what I'm really happy and proud to say is that we've also added excess return from our fixed income investing as well. Craig, Wes, thank you for your time and effort. I always get a lot from our conversations. I really appreciate you both for putting the first quarter and all its happenings into context. On behalf of our listeners, thank you again. It's always a pleasure. As always, if you have any questions about what we spoke about today, questions about your portfolio, please don't be shy. Reach out to an MD advisor. Whether you're a client or not, we're here to help. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider and check out our other market commentary content available on md.ca. to find blog posts, videos, and much more. Last but not least, thank you for listening to the MD Market Watch podcast, and thank you for all the doctors and healthcare professionals out there for taking care of us. Bye, everybody. Uh-huh.